0: Well, we finally made it. Here we are, episode ten of the Stephen George podcast. Uh, the boys are well, not quite reunited yet, but I am back from LA. I'm in the UK. George is broadcasting from Oxford, and today we are going to talk about books because we've kind of slipped a lot of book references in throughout the podcast so far, but we haven't done an episode just on books and. This one is going to be about non-fiction books. Non-fiction books specifically that have changed our outlook or perspective. Um, Now, obviously, George, you read predominantly fiction. I probably strike a mm, kind of 60-40 balance, 60 towards fiction, 40 non-fiction. But you've kind of of wet your whistle a lot more in recent (laughs) years into non-fiction, I'd say. Um, and become about as voracious of that as you become with fiction So I think we should have a good haul to talk about today and a good range because we read different stuff um, Have I accurately summarized the theme George before we proceed?
1: You've nailed it Steve.
0: Thank Lord for that <laughs> <laughs> um, How are you how are you buddy?
1: I'm well Steve um... Just had a. I've had a dinner that uh, I thought was meat, and it turned out it was a, a meat replacement product. So I'm I'm wrestling with, with how I feel about that. But otherwise, all things are all things are going well.
0: Are you inwardly mildly furious? Ah,
1: yeah, you know, I I just feel a little bit a little bit shortchanged. But um, we'll Could, get. We'll can go, you share go.
0: how? How? How after the meal do you discover that? Did Did you go to a vegetarian society dinner with not without knowing or? No,
1: um, uh, someone had cooked food for my girlfriend. There were some leftovers, and I was under the impression it was bolognese, so I, I assumed it had been made with a lovely sort of you know <laughs> beefy ragu. Turned out sure. it was a, uh, a kind of a mushroom protein bonded with egg white. So uh, not you know. Not it wasn't quite Mama's old kitchen recipe, but um, <laughs> <laughs> next next best thing. But um, I'm making do and uh, full of full of energy for this this upcoming audio
0: treat. Lovely stuff. Well, I feel like let's keep it punchy. I would like you to kick us off, George. I'd like you to take us somewhere. What what's uh, I, You know, I'm very curious about this because we haven't discussed our choices at all so i'm curious you know i've seen you grow over the years george but i'm curious what are what are the words that have prompted it <laughs> um well the first one i've picked i am I, um,
1: sure i'm sure the keen-eared listeners know that i keep a spreadsheet of all the books i read and i've, I've trawled through it back to kind of early 2007 which is when i started putting uh, pen, pen to paper on stuff and I, I really did not read nonfiction almost at all, and the first nonfiction title that I read is kind of in here as a sort of meta entry, just because it was the book that made me realise that nonfiction, in of itself, is a genre that I, I'd like. I mean, broader than genre, but like an area of of reading that I would enjoy and gain a lot from. And my gateway into it, as someone who was very focused on reading fiction or kind of plot driven or narrative driven stuff was, um, the right stuff by Tom Wolf. Um, okay. so have you read that or seen the film?
0: No, I haven't.
1: No. So it's his account of the, uh, the astronaut program, the original intake of astronauts for the Mercury program, um, with NASA. And it's just absolutely riveting. Um, and again, I didn't take anything necessarily personal from it. And, in like learning something myself other than the genre itself could be riveting but his writing style was super engaging it's it's kind of one of the first or he was one of the first um proponents of new journalism and kind of the journalist being engaged with the content itself rather than being a kind of all-seeing eye or you know a sort of removed and impartial third party his earlier texts actually had him kind of in and involved so a book on i'd kind of studied but hadn't read in depth was the electric kool-aid acid test which he wrote in the 60s as part of the like san francisco rock band drug scene you know following bands like the grateful dead and that sort of stuff and he was he was known as the man in the white suit he uh, he wore a three-piece white suit possibly a trilby hat and was this kind of odd figure among all the hippies and he's almost a character in the text himself and he doesn't push that as much in the right stuff but the narrative is really there it's really about the people involved and these just amazing characters involved in this really amazing program of kind of human endeavor and yeah getting stuck into that made me realize that non-fiction doesn't have to be i I think my perception of it was quite dry you know the history of Abraham Lincoln or um business texts and that sort of stuff so i'd always kind of veered away from it but it's just a it's a super engaging story incredible pioneers and a different take on that style of writing so that was that was my way in and it's taken me a while to follow through on it but um for it just changing my outlook on how to even perceive nonfiction, i'm thankful to mr tom wolf
0: nice very nice i don't think i've ever i've only known about the Electric, electric kool Acid Test. And is, he, is it a different person who wrote Bonfire of the Vanities? No, same it, guy. It is him. Yeah, because I know yeah. there's a Tom Wolf and a Thomas Wolfe, um, which sometimes gets confusing. Mm. But yeah, um, that's lovely stuff. Well, I'll pop that on the list. I'll jump to my first one. Um, my first one is a science book, George. Mm. And it's actually a fairly recent one. But I feel that it's just a great example. It well, a it changed my view on a long-standing debate that you know has been timeless throughout history, and also it showed me how to conduct a very lucid, singular argument through an entire book uh, and make it compelling. And that is Steven Pinker's book, *The Blank Slate*. Wonderful. Um, and uh, the thing, you know, it's, it's quite a meaty book. It's, it's one where actually a lot of the best stuff gets done in the first five or six chapters, and then a lot of it is, is spent batting off certain counter arguments. But it's basically a book where Steven Pinker tries to argue that the current, the current school of thought puts a huge amount in the wake of things like psychoanalysis and, and Freudianism, all that sort of stuff, Marxism. Uh, puts a huge amount of weight on the idea that we as human beings are enormously shaped by our parents, by our culture um, by society, and basically by anything other than our deep down genetics or nature and He tries to argue that human beings are not a blank slate uh so yeah, sorry, human beings are not a blank slate where anything that happens to you in childhood uh you know, will change your entire personality. He says, actually, we inherit a huge amount from our parents' uh, genes. And so it's actually, it's, and he basically shows why a lot of people find this deeply uncomfortable. Mm. And what I think it did for me, because I think it can be deeply uncomfortable. It can feel fatalistic to read a book that says, um, this is who you are, essentially. And you don't have a lot of, it's it's not the fact that, your dad shouted you at, you at five years old. That meant that this happened. It might just be that maybe you're a nat, whatever. You might be a naturally slightly more nervous person, or or whatever it is. And and obviously, it creates a huge amount of discomfort. But I think the story, the nature nurture debate, is never resolved. It's it's complicated, and and Pinker acknowledges that. But but what it shows you is, to some extent, I found it empowering because. You can almost look at your strengths and weaknesses in a much more hard-nosed, realist way and say, you know, I don't need to wish, there's no, there's no point going and wishing these things were different or saying, maybe if I had more piano lessons, I would be a creative genius or something like that. It kind of lets you sort of just say, this is how the cards are dealt. And I can kind of use that as an empowering you know, And also it stops parents and everyone obsessing that every yeah. single tiny thing yeah. they do will forever change their child. In we do, I mean,
1: we do that with loads of stuff. Like, I, I'm not beating myself up every day because I'm not six foot seven and therefore not in the NBA, right? Like, I've accepted that genetic determinant already. So like, I guess it's not hard to also accept that that's why I can't play the piano or something like that, right? We make a lot of those acknowledgements already. We just don't go
0: yeah, all yeah. the way. And I think he he obviously acknowledges the importance of practice or learning in any endeavor. Having the right opportunities is huge, obviously. All these things affect our lives profoundly. So there's, and and obviously if a parent is abusive or anything like that, that will profoundly affect your, um, you know, your self-esteem and things like that. Those things are affected, but what he says, like the basic raw material that makes up who you are is actually very much encoded in you. And, uh, yeah, I, in some ways I found that easier to find peace with who I am because of that. It, it made me more like that's, yeah, that that's my nature. Um, uh, yeah, I found something quite liberating in it.
1: That's great. That's actually a, a book you bought me as a gift for my birthday last year, Stephen. It's still on my to-read pile, so I will, I will escalate it up the list very quickly. Uh,
0: lovely. And what he also shows is how that, that that thinking of nurture can actually be really destructive because it can lead to a lot of really destructive social projects and lots of you know totalitarian projects have been founded on the idea that human nature can be changed by the right you know if we if we do this to people then we'll make them perfect and he shows that can be really destructive as well Mm. i suppose the flip side of that is a lot of totalitarian ideas are founded on (laughs) genetic genetic
1: determinants as well right but um right different. right
0: so it's yeah yeah that's that's fair it might not be totally free of danger but yeah it's interesting yeah nice one i'll we'll definitely
1: engage with that it's, it's cool that you can actually say that it's changed your outlook though like having having that takeaway is is really amazing yeah yeah
0: um, um shoot, shoot me another mate
1: i'll fire back at you fire one back at you um a science book steve um my non-fiction reading tends to i guess the strongest thread that runs through it is probably science and medical um if if I could pigeonhole hold them down a little bit and the one of the first science books that changed my i guess outlook and also personal acknowledgement that my engagement with science when we were at school was so I don't know i didn't put the effort in and wish i did in hindsight so i've been trying to kind of teach myself or at least learn the things i should know already and the one yeah, that, you and me both yeah and the one that i kind of engaged with first and really liked and got a lot from was six easy pieces by richard Feynman. Um, oh yeah i guess because he's renowned for being one of the great teachers and i've found the way he approaches how he explains his lessons really useful um it kind of consolidated my interest in yeah more of a an understanding of the scientific world around us rather than just sort of ignoring everything going on um but yeah again outlook wise it just sort of it crystallized my interest in an area that I otherwise used to think I hated or didn't care about. And now I read a ton of these science books that, are, you know, have come since I guess he was publishing in the 70s, mm. 70s and 80s. And there's just huge swathes of these kind of popular science texts now. And um, yeah, they're, they're a big area of interest for me. And he, he just really opened the door. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to try and regurgitate the things I learned from them because I'll I'll garble them atrociously, but yeah, it's like a really good primer for understanding physics in quite an interesting way. And then making it also applicable to things like I don't know science fiction or, or things that I was otherwise interested in. So I, I've certainly changed a lot. My outlook has changed a lot as a result of reading that.
0: Yeah. I love that. Um, I love anything by Richard Feynman and uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think, I think people can be scared off by anything that's physics because it, because every physics book, if you're not a physicist, very much stretches your intellectual comfort zone and, and you can feel like you're really working hard to keep up. But I found that even if you miss a certain percentage of it, you're you're always with every extra science book, you're taking in like another, you know, you're taking in another 5% to your knowledge and, and eventually you start to understand at least the things that matter in these big um Seismic shifts in science, whether it's relativity or quantum mechanics, and you—you might not get all the intricacies, but you get why this is important and what it means. Um, So, yeah, uh, that's a great way to start. Um, I'm going to jump to um, a book, very, very simple book. I've recommended it on this before, I believe, and I've recommended it to many, many people because it's just—I've—I found it endlessly useful. Uh, it's kind of book you keep picking up you can you can keep picking up at any point and flip to any point and get some instant well essentially motivation or inspiration uh and it is Stephen pressfield's the war of art um i don't think you have mentioned that maybe uh i feel like i've maybe i've very briefly mentioned it but maybe um it's a short book it's made up of very extremely short chapters of a couple of pages each and essentially the entire book is um a kick in the bum basically if you if you need to win an inner creative battle with yourself as in you just have some elephant piece of work that is bugging you and you find yourself putting it off or procrastinating or feeling stuck and and what it what was really revelatory about it for me is the style is great. It's really cleanly written prose. Each one almost tells, you know, different approaches, different stories. But all of it is just linked around the same thing, which is there is this thing called the resistance that is constantly telling you to not not do something and is constantly telling you if it's risky, if it, if it feels like putting yourself out there, whatever it is there's there's a constant inner resistance and you 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 even even the best artist will struggle with the resistance every single day
1: and well, is that resistance in the creative process or just like introducing yourself to someone in a busy room
0: what's he talking about specifically well he 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 links it to many different projects or things you can try and take on um, you know you could take this on to like if you were dating and meeting people um, the resistance tells you not to go and start a conversation. Right. You know the resistance tells you when you sit down at your desk, you don't have, in it, five hundred words in you today. And what it what it taught me is that that feeling is not a sign for you to stop, which I think a lot of people take it as. Is, is that basically there's there's a, a myth of inspiration is that I'm going to get inspiration if I wait long enough. And this basically says. No, th- this is the job of inspiration, is your battle with that feeling. And the more times you overcome that feeling, the more work you'll produce, the more great things you'll produce. But you will, just because you beat that feeling yesterday, it will come back again today. And it's right. a kind of sobering thought of like, you won't, you won't get some point where you suddenly feel perfectly inspired all the time. You'll have to fight the part of you that tells you not to do it all the time. And it's a... Uh, yeah it's kind of an impetus to be brave to be bolder to just get the thing done instead of thinking about perfection and uh i found it my most useful tool in going back and confronting that with any big piece of work that's really cool
1: Uh, what um what stage did you read that at did you read that while you were doing a d-film
0: i read that during my doctorate yeah um yeah and it's always been a thing when i've been i tried for years to write short stories i would kind of psych myself out eventually by just talking myself out of it in the middle of one or or abandoning it and it it taught me to confront and finish things essentially which i think is just a big secret to achieving anything really that's great uh yeah
1: really good um well we're just we're powering through steve i like this this is this is just purely efficient podcasting um i will continue with How one that's kind of in the likeness of the the one i mentioned previously so yeah the non-fiction i read is primarily science and or health and medicine and this one is a book i read for about three or four years ago and maybe the most kind of human on a human level impactful to me it's called do no harm and it's by henry marsh and he is a a neurosurgeon um, who is now i suppose retired now and he wrote it as he was coming to the very end of his career and it's kind of the personal reflections of a man coming to the end of their kind of meaningful working life but also uh, having dealt with the kind of battle of humanity that people with of brain diseases and issues of the mind have had and it's just incredibly powerful um excuse me um kind of incredibly powerful to hear him talk about the issues that people face and kind of mortality and perception and just all the issues of the mind that you could ever really conceive he's he's sort of there dealing with the tangibles of it he's drilling into your head cutting your skull off scooping out you know a tumor all this sort of all this sort of thing and it he, he has some really amazing insights into the what he perceives the nature of reality to be and you know being able to pinpoint something in someone's mind every perception and image and emotion you feel comes from this very physical little little flap of flesh and cells is kind of mad and he he really pipe he was really the pioneer of this Uh, technology that is used I think still in lots of operating theatres where um, they will uh, anesthetize the patient but only under local anesthetic so they remain awake during brain surgery and he can then uh, perform the operation he needs to on an area of brain while talking to the patient to make sure that they retain all the function that they should while he's trimming away say an infected area of the brain so previously they would Open up someone's skull, oh. cut out a chunk, and then zip them back up. And they wake up in the morning and they can't walk anymore. He would be able to say, Well, I'm cutting this away, you know, keep talking to me or keep moving your left hand. And as soon as they notice some function starts to dissipate or they start slurring their words, they know, Okay, this is kind of the boundary of what we can do. And I had this really like profound reaction to reading that and just knowing that you are such a product of the kind of, yeah, that sort of physical ball of electricity in your head and how easily affected it could be just the slightest thing can entirely change someone's personality or you know all that kind of stuff and just the work he he does or anyone in that space does and the nurses and the whole team it's uh i've said this to you before when you ask like oh if you could go back and do any career i always say to myself medicine because i find it really just really fascinating and really impactful and the yeah the level of change to people's lives they can make i don't know if actually practically i would enjoy it or would be able to do it but um i've always had that thought in the back of my mind and yeah hearing kind of experts in pioneering areas of that field which is so related to what makes us human yeah it's fascinating for sure
0: and is does it have a central like thesis that it's trying to push in a book or or is it more just a exploration of it's kind of
1: recollections of what what has happened through his life and i guess it's called do no harm and is you know his whole mo is trying to save people from these kind of catastrophic issues that they're facing but the slightest mistake could completely alter someone's personality or just kill them or leave them paralyzed and it's like wrestling with that and going. Another great thread that runs through it, I think, is the kind of the ego of the surgeon. He's he's a super interesting guy. I, I find him fascinating. He was, he was up at Oxford, read PPE as an undergraduate and then moved across to medicine a little bit later in life. And there's certainly that surgeon's arrogance, the kind of bluster and confidence of I can do anything and slightly like the God complex kind of petering through. And then there'll be that kind of hubristic moment where he thinks, oh, yeah, I can do I can save this person and then someone drops a scalpel during the surgery and they're left in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. And just that fine balance of of how humanity is kind of super fragile. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought, yeah, I found it really powerful. He's written a certainly a second book, possibly even a third since as well, um, which the second one's called Admissions, which is a, another collection of anecdotes about his kind of time in medicine. He did a lot of work in the Ukraine and in... Uh, tibet or nepal kind of in areas with very limited resources and there's some really interesting insights as to how those countries are like dramatically underfunded so it's just a real eye-opener as to the kind of stuff going on in in that world um and he also for, for the literary fans out there he's not a friend but someone who's had a lot of interactions with carl Oven ennausgaard the norwegian writer who writes a lot about what it means to be human and who we are and the kind of, I guess, like more emotive side of that. And there were a couple of documentaries on the BBC in the UK a couple of years ago where the two of them got together and approached like issues of humanity and who we are and memory and all those things. But from a surgeon's point of view, kind of with his hands dirty and the, the writer and the kind of thinker's point of view. Um, and there was some really interesting overlap. So if you can find that as well, kind of Google both their names and you can find some good stuff.
0: Nice, lovely stuff. Um, all right, I'm going to jump to a different field, um, taking us to the art of making predictions. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a book that has, I'd say actually profoundly in the last few years, affected the way I think about the world um, and partly certain things I do in my job, actually. Um, and in is, this my life. The, is this the
1: horoscopes book?
0: <laughs> yeah i'm really really getting into astrology right now um at uh no it's um it's a book super forecasting by philip tetlock which i know you're also a fan of george absolutely um, just a little backstage news george may have been considering this book uh in his list um but it was the only one he told me he was uh considering we thought we wouldn't double up it's been bumped um, it's been bumped. Um, so um, this book, Super Forecasting, is basically about what the limitations of being human and why we all think we are much better at predicting what's going to happen than we are. And But the very interesting revelation that you can actually improve on prediction if you can understand certain biases. And And some people are limited in being able to do this. And there's a group of people they found called... Super forecasters, basically, who they found were inordinately good at predicting, and it wasn't just a matter of luck they they got them to predict hundreds of things and um, they looked at certain commonalities in the way they reasoned, the way they thought, how they approached data and conflicting views and they they found certain things in common uh, that they have and uh just this book was just eye opening to me in terms of the things that the things that we do, for, for, for one thing, overconfidence. And our bias is when we get things right to assume that it's because we're brilliant. And when we get things wrong, we immediately quickly rationalize them. And one thing about super forecasters is they're extremely sober about when they're right and they're wrong. And they're also, uh, you know, until the very end, they're open to completely contradictory evidence that changes their mind. And that sounds obvious, and yet if you observe in your everyday life how people behave when they try to predict what's going to happen in the election, they'll inordinately favor their own candidate. Um, when things don't go the way they said, they'll have some excuse. They won't change their forecast based on anything that happens. So if they if they think, you know, candidate X is definitely going to win, you the question that Tetlock says to ask yourself is, what piece of evidence would you have to see to make you change your mind? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it was about a prediction on whatever, whether a meteor is going to hit the earth, climate change, whatever it is, it's what, what piece of contradictory evidence would actually make you change your mind about this issue? And And for many people, there's nearly nothing that can change their mind once they fix themselves on a certain view because we have certain biases to stay with what we have. Um, and to avoid loss and all these kind of things um, and uh, yeah just just understanding that that you know you 've got to welcome the con- the completely contradictory evidence, and changing your mind is not a weakness; it can actually lead to some of your best results you know and if it 's something like investment, people can get because they fix themselves on a company and convince themselves the story, we we basically make up a story. Once we've made the decision, we then make up a story as to why it's a brilliant decision. And we'll go, well, this must be a brilliant company. I've invested in it and they're going to grow for years and years. And they're, they're, they're in a brilliant industry and whatever. And we're not actually looking for things to disconfirm that, but really we should treat every new piece of evidence as a potential reason to say. You know what? Maybe I should sell everything now because actually, I've I've got this completely wrong, and this this company's way worse than I thought it is, and they've got tons of problems and management issues and blah blah blah. Um, so yeah, that that's a lot to take in, but it's yeah, it's just mastering our biases, and I think there's nothing more important than seeing how bad we are at processing conflicting information and just having a lot more humility. Because I think because we're good at one part of life, we tend to assume that that transfers to another. Yeah. You know? um, and one thing you need to make good predictions is, you know, you need to actually be able to see the results of your predictions, assess them, and get very quick feedback. Uh, I find that I release these videos with my brother every week on YouTube, and I feel like I have an i intu- have developed some kind of intuition about what titles will do very well on YouTube, what won't, um, why this subject is way more appealing to our audience than another one. Uh, And we do stuff on dating. So it might be, if you say the five things you didn't know about men, that's a very attractive title. And we see very good results from anything related to that. But if you said, why you need a better social life, it's not a very sexy topic. And people don't click on that a lot. But what you have to do, so I can see the data on that, but it's almost constantly retesting your biases because you can start to get very overconfident that you start to you, you understand how people think basically, and what it's taught me in our company is to never stop testing, never assume you've got everyone pegged, and you just know. Um, do nice, the testing yeah, for sure, um, but I. I do believe in some form of expert intuition but i think you have to have that regular constant feedback to see if your prediction is actually working or not and uh, that intuition's and
1: informed right it's not um it's not just like uh, the octopus who knows which world cup team is going to win it's right it's not, no, it's, it's not really intuition in the sense that if it's if it's properly informed it's you know it's not just a gut feeling a lot a lot comes before that
0: yeah and you need very specific conditions to develop it you you yeah. you probably won't get it even elections there's probably not enough of them for you to develop some expert intuition on who would win an election there's yeah there's just not enough not enough data probably on that yeah
1: um, yeah, yeah it's it's a great book it, it certainly changes it's like day-to-day applicable rather than just being this kind of thesis about what's going on in the world of I don't know, economics, you know, it's it, it, it looks like one of those books, but when you read it, you think I, I, there's a lot of day-to-day takeaways. So, yeah, I, I'd definitely second that one for sure.
0: Yeah. And keep score of the absurd predictions everyone around you makes and you'll notice <laughs> that people still think they're right, even if they get it wrong most of the time. Um, yes, George? You want
1: another one, do you? Um, I'm going to take things... Completely in a different direction, and um, yeah, this this book—it well, would be far far overegging it to say—look, it changed my life. But I certainly read it at a moment when I was considering different things to do with my life, and it it really resonated at the right time and uh, reignited my interest in the arts, Steve, and uh, had a knock-on effect as to where I applied to to carry on with my education and so on and so forth. So the book is, um, it's called A Bigger Message, Conversations with David Hockney, and it's by the art critic Martin Gayford. And it came out in conjunction with the big, um, the big exhibition that David Hockney did in early 2012. Um, And this is, yeah, a dialogue between, between those two uh, about the art that he put together for that, but also about his career and his outlook as an artist um I, i'm not a i'm not super knowledgeable knowledgeable about art and uh i wouldn't profess to be the world's biggest david hockney fan but I, I really like his stuff and this book just had some amazing insights into i guess the the perspective and world view of someone who sees like literally sees the world dif- like entirely differently to how i do or how i'm sure you do or most people do in terms of the resonance he sees in the colours he sees, or the shapes he sees, and how he chooses to look at a subject, or why he finds the things he looks at powerful or impactful. Um, yeah, I thought I thought it was absolutely fascinating. He talks a lot about um, his kind of knowledge of the history of art as well, but not in a dry way, more in a a kind of technically slightly technical and esoteric way that only other artists would really grasp. And he talks a lot about um, Caravaggio and A kind of camera technique that he believes Caravaggio invented not camera to take photographs but as a way of kind of viewing a small image and kind of pinhole light stuff and he's able to kind of come to those conclusions because he's done you know years and years of painting and all that that sort of stuff and yeah I just found the insights amazing and it's like a beautifully illustrated book it's got loads of his paintings in it Um, and the questions are really well put together like Martin Gayford's written some fantastic stuff in the art world more generally he did another great book about sitting for a portrait with lucian freud and a a really interesting history about the yellow house where van gogh and gogan were living and um, yeah he's probably one of the best kind of contemporary british art writers i think and um yeah i I found this fascinating if you like sort of accessible contemporary art writing it's it's a really great place to start It's, it's fairly breezy but full of insights
0: Wow. That's awesome. I really like David Hockney. So uh, I think I saw that book a lot while we were living together, but, um, <laughs> didn't, didn't get around to it, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's great. I'm trying to think now if I should have put an art book in there, but you know what? I don't need it now. Cause you've put it in for it. Um, uh, okay. I am going to jump to one more. Um, so I think this book, this book I think was just very a useful tonic, I would say, and it's um it's a book that is not really a it's not really a personal development book, but more an exploration of um what's important, what values are important, and the kind of it, it tries to flip on its head what it thinks a lot of the values are now, where um. So it's the book road to the road to character by David Brooks, uh, who is a columnist for, I think the New York times. Um, he, one of those, one of those American newspapers, um, he's a commentator and he writes for the Atlantic. Yeah. He's written for the New York times for several years. And, uh, it's a, it's a book that's kind of about how we now have many ego based goals. Um, live in a time of a, lot of a lot of narcissism, a lot of self-esteem, a lot of basically there's a big movement about self-esteem and it's about your passion and your course in life and you know everything's about fulfilling your goals and your fulfilling relationship and this book really is about people who have sacrificed and people who have suffered. Um, people you would know, uh, there's, there's certain you know, famous activists like uh, people like Martin Luther King, but there's also people like um, who struggled with their own personal um, obstacles, like Doctor Samuel Johnson, uh, the novelist George Eliot, and how she came to writing very late and was encouraged by her husband. And she, but, um, George Eliot. Yeah, I'm, I'm being <laughs> a yeah, putting a little putting a little gag in there. Yeah. Um, yeah spoiler alert: George Eliot. It's <laughs> um but uh yeah it goes to this very sort of disparate array of characters but it it looks at and it just looks at different facets of you know some of them had inner demons they struggled with some of them went through great suffering to achieve what they did and um you know he compares samuel johnson and Montaigne and how they were different characters who had different struggles uh to produce their work and 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 it's basically yeah it's looking at the value of unpopular virtues like self-sacrifice, humility, um, going through difficult things, suffering, what you might give to other people, uh, all those things. But I found it just, it's actually very, um, it doesn't go through any cliche of self-development really. It's It's like if you want to actually round your character, I think he calls them develop your eulogy virtues as opposed to your you know, whatever achievement-based virtues. It's like, what would you want people to say about you, basically, after you are gone? That's a, It's a kind of test of like, how would you want to be thought of by others? And uh, he says that these virtues are much more difficult to cultivate and take a lot of time and a lot of energy, and they're not as immediately rewarding, but they're very enriching. So I found it useful for thinking about when you're going through struggles and difficult things and you think this isn't the you know this isn't the fun or exciting or this isn't the great success i wanted or whatever it is and it's actually a way of saying there are other things that matter essentially mm-hmm. um yeah I, I found it powerful for that uh for discussing that very good very
1: nice it's uh, not one to read if you've just read say Atlas shrugged or something like that but um... <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's probably a slightly different angle on personal <laughs> development than Ayn Rand. Um, sure. but yeah, yeah, it's like it's a lot about more about self mastery I'd say, about like looking at your your flaws and things and devoting yourself to something bigger, I
1: guess. Nice. Um, well, I've I've got one more Steve to round things off, uh, a book Yeah, that... round it off. Let's do it. It's a book that you've also read. Uh, It was recommended to me by my brother. Uh, It's called Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall. Um, And it's like, I guess a kind of, it's like entry level geopolitics. If you don't have any knowledge of geopolitics, which I certainly do not. um, It's just a a really kind of engaging and well-constructed take on the state of global affairs based on the geography of the different regions and how where a river is or the swampy nature of a certain country will affect things that we don't really take into consideration when we sort of armchair analyze the state of the world you know um oh that country should be doing this well it can't actually because it doesn't have the infrastructure or um yeah those sorts of things um I thought it was fascinating, really well put together. Um, didn't seem to have any particular bias or slant other than his own kind of personal prism, but nothing, nothing that kind of affects how you can perceive what he's saying. And it had kind of a future forecast on certain issues. Um, yeah, it's, it's really changed how I consider international affairs and yeah, how the world's kind of come about really. Um, yeah super super useful super interesting you could read it very quickly it's um it's broken into about 10 very accessible chapters and uh yeah he's a he's a great a great kind of popular not really yes well popular world affairs writer i would say and i thoroughly recommend it
0: uh i absolutely concur group together even as they are essentially um why are the continents the continents and whatever um so yeah uh, i love that uh boy we've done a good spread there for people i feel not bad at all you read all of them i mean there are a lot of five-star bankers in there um, you read all of those
1: you're halfway to a Stephen george podcast are not you
0: <laughs> you are well on your way of putting us out of business. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So we hope you've enjoyed this little romp through some of our best nonfiction reads. Um, we've got plenty more book stuff to come. Uh, I know there's a lot of things we'll be itching to talk about and maybe do a fiction one soon where we can get our teeth into something there. Um, yeah. And, uh, I just want to say thank you for being with us for 10 episodes, uh, for listening so far. We've, uh, got off the ground now and and seem to have some regulars who seem to follow and listen and check in with us and we really appreciate it and uh you can find us on all the channels uh itunes soundcloud stitcher uh spotify uh so whichever one you love the most find us there then pick another one and find us there as well
1: (laughs) Um, let's let's skew these numbers with some double (laughs) listens.
0: Is there anything you want to say, George, before our sign off?
1: No, that's me done. I'm burnt out.
0: All right, we've cooked our goose. Uh, thanks for listening, guys, and we will be back very soon.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Ta da.